Hello everyone, welcome to Artsaniti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. In the recent period, we have seen that the labor market dynamics has really changed because of the evolution of online job platforms. It has really changed how workers find jobs, how they bargain for jobs, and the overall employment dynamics. To understand the intricacies and to especially look at whether it has improved the overall matching process in terms of how workers find jobs, whether that has improved or not, we have Professor Philip Kircher with us today. He's currently a professor of economics at Cornell, where he also spearheads the Institute for Labor Dynamics. Professor Kircher, he has worked at University of Pennsylvania, LSE, Oxford, Uni University of Edinburgh, European University Institute. He has also been the managing editor at the Review of Economic Studies, and we are very happy to have you here, Philip. Thank you for your time and welcome to Arthaniti. Thanks, Eka. So, a lot of your work has been looking at job search and matching. I'm asking a very broad question just to set the stage. What do you do? Can you give us like some sense of what are the theoretical ideas that you look at? And also like if there are some stylized facts that we know about the labor market. So the work on, on job search really started with two by now old observations coming out of the 60s, right? Uh, on the macro side, people got interested in kind of how can it be that there are empty vacancies out there and still unemployed job seekers that don't have a job. Why, why is this market not completely clearing? And so they developed this notion, kind of going back to the 60s and 70s, that maybe it just takes time, right? There's something, you might even call it a productive process, a search process by which you have to kind of go around looking for things until you find an option or maybe in more elaborate models, the right option. The second observation was about dispersion, right? You see people that you might consider to be quite similar, earning quite different wages. And so the question was kind of how can that be? And if it takes time to look at the right options, you get to a place where maybe this person was more lucky than that person. These notions became quite fruitful both at the macro level to think about unemployment, but also kind of in a more micro level, how, what type of dispersion might we attribute to this or not? When I entered economics, right, the, 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 there were some open questions, both in theory and maybe also in some of the data work that had to do with kind of more of the intricacies of this process, right? Are workers just kind of running around at random bumping into stuff, which we usually call random search? Or do they have the options to target some things more than others, right? And in the extreme, what is called directed search is saying, like, maybe I know even that this is a good job. I might know something about the pay, right? This job pays more than the other job. But I kind of also understand that these good jobs might attract more or better people. So the competition of actually getting this job might be more fierce, right? And just kind of seems kind of natural. Probably reality is somewhere in between, between random and targeting, right? But even people at the time, there were a lot of open questions. How do you even formulate this in a way that we like as economists? Can we do little models that would capture this? What happens if people apply to more than one job? How would they structure it? Would they all go high or would some go low and so on? So that was some of the things that interested me. And I think there's a lot of progress that came out of this on the more theoretical side. The second big thing, and I think that is, I mean, that, that strand is still around and it's growing, I think. But there's also this thing about, you know, when you think about why do the two sides of the market don't necessarily fit together, at some point you naturally think about heterogeneity. They're just not all the same. And the, work, the jobs are not all the same, the workers aren't all the same. And so I spent quite some time thinking about, both on the theory side, but then later also in more applied settings, kind of what, what, what does it matter? 
right? When are, let's say, good jobs attracting the better workers, right? If there are surge fractions, does this heterogeneity interact with, with who gets hired where? You know, maybe there's a firm that wants a good worker because it itself has a demanding job, but it's also really costly to be vacant. So maybe then even the production kind of requires a good worker, maybe I'm happy to take a not so good worker just to, to get it done, right? And so you kind of think about what are the driving forces that shape this? How does it feed back into the heterogeneity of wages that different workers face? How do people's workers move around between these jobs? Or sometimes you block them together as occupations, maybe different occupations have different requirements. And you kind of think about that and there are kind of interesting patterns that come out of this and that also links to more recent questions about can we help people in this process. So if I have to think from the firm side, it's more about how long does it take to fill it. Uh, but this is on the second question, basically like where do you match, like do good firms get good people, but sometimes good firms can hire maybe not so good people. Exactly. I think there's this kind of, kind of that part of, of the literature try to think about the interaction, how important is it for me in production to have a particular type of worker. Just imagine that more complex jobs require in production to have more experienced or more skilled workers. So that's, that's kind of just coming from the production side. How does it interact with how long it would take me to find these people? And same for the worker side as well. well. The same for the worker side, right? They might and be more skilled, but maybe because there's no job, they are willing to take something else, which they were initially e not. Exactly. And so kind of thinking about how the two interacts, kind of also mathematically, how does it shape the sorting patterns? How much mismatch do you see in these markets, right? So some of these models are nice in the fact that you don't always get the best job for you, just because you don't, you don't get to meet all the jobs. Okay, I'm going to ask a tricky question. What is a mismatch? Like, how would you define? Can we define it? I can give you a loose notion. I'm not sure kind of I can do it perfectly. So right? theoretically, we should be able to do it better than empirically, I guess. So theoretically, we can probably do a better job defining these things, right? But it might be a little bit hard to communicate because I have a particular model in my mind and I'm not sure how much the listeners will, will get it. But you can kind of, for example, think about a world where you make a model where the workers are different in terms of how good, I mean, in the simplest models, there's really only one degree of heterogeneity, right? You might just be more skilled than me in general, right? And the jobs have a general notion of skill requirements, so more skill-intensive jobs would prefer to hire you than me more than the other ones. Everybody might like you more because you're more skilled, but the sense at which you're willing to really pay for it goes up as, as the job becomes more complex. And then we can define a notion how that market would look like if we wouldn't have to go through a search process, right? And, and in these simple versions, the best, the most complex job would hire the most complex workers, presumably, and then it would kind of clear top down. And that would give you a notion how that market might operate. So there's like some government bureaucrat or planner deciding. Exactly. That, that would be one interpretation. Or you could even just have a free market that would just work very well. Very efficient. Exactly. That might give you a certain base allocation and that could give you an idea about what mismatch might be. Right? There are more empirical notions of mismatch, just saying are you overqualified, are you underqualified in some more loose, you know, subjective sense. Here it would be kind of the model counterpart of saying let's take the allocation where everything works perfectly as a benchmark. That allocation you won't get if I have to run around trying to find the right match 
because even if I don't find my right match, it's just not worth the trouble of searching for another couple of months to just get it even better. And do you think it changes over the business cycle, like when the market is tight versus when the market is loose, when it's easy to find a job versus when it's less easy to find a job? I do, even though our explorations on the kind of trying to use the theory side to think about that is a little bit tricky. Because, the, you know, we have some business cycle episodes and there's very good work being done trying to exploit this. But if you want to use several business cycle episodes to study this, you have to make some assumptions whether the technology that matches these two sites is still similar when you go back to the 80s than in 2000. And these are quite strong assumptions that you have to make to do this type of work if you want to use multiple business cycle episodes. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a dicey thing. That's why it's, you know, technology, I mean, production is changing fast, right? So, um, but there are other things coming out of this, for example, thinking about how, how would your wages change if you were matched to a better firm, right? That's one of the works that I was engaged with, just thinking about, usually I can't see these skills. I can use proxies, right? But there's something that won't show up in your CV, right? That shows how good you are in doing a lot of your work that I might, that the employers might get. They might sit down like we do now and, 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 and figure it These out. These days but, they ask for a video CV. Exactly, exactly. But the, which actually exists, by the way. There are now people using artificial intelligence and so on, and they record you without any human, and they just try to extract kit skills that your CV doesn't show. Yeah, yeah, there are like automated platforms which are also doing it. Exactly. But um, what I wanted to say is from, from an empirical point of view, uh, which is something I, I drifted in later in, in my interest in labor markets, we would like to back it out from the things that we see and your CV might not give us a whole picture. All right. So we might infer it from, let's say, the wages you earn at various firms. And the question is, is that an easy task? or how complicated does it get? And so you have to think very hard about how wages are set. Is it good for me if the firm is a lot better than me? Right? Maybe that's great because good firms pay a lot, but maybe it's bad because I'm just too bad for the job. Right? At some point, you know, it might be better to do the thing I can actually do rather than be being at a great firm where I'm just not the right guy. And then these type of things you have to think through very carefully. And that's part of the work I did with Jan Eckhout and so on, trying to think through these things and how they they might matter. And just following on this, if you have to think of like some stylized empirical facts that you think like are very critical to understanding labor markets, how these matching processes work. Like to me, what seems like very critical is like best firms pay the best salaries on average. And what explains probably the wages you get is a large part of it is coming from where you're employed, basically. I think these things are a little bit tricky because you're trying to say this is, a, this is a good form on some dimensions, but all I see is how much they pay. I mean, I might also see other things, right? But it's a firm that pays a lot. Does it make it a good firm, right? And a good firm for whom, right? I do think there is this, certainly this discussion out there that if you want to understand dispersion of wages, which people, you know, inequality in the labor market is something people care deeply about. Um, one of the things that people have suggested is that how much kind of good workers are kind of matched to good jobs, and there's a lot of discussion what that exactly means, might have shifted over time. And the more they go together, 
at least if you interpret it as high-paying firms and high-paying workers, right, that might have explained some of the increasing wage dispersion that we see. My own focus has shifted quite a bit to occupations more than kind of firms, just because one of the things I re more recently got interested in is when you go through the labor market process, you, you might actually face quite some limited information about what are the options out there. And with technological change, I'm just very worried that people have to reallocate out of some occupations into others. And they might not have easy, good information how to do this transition, right? So they might not have the skills and they might not even have the information, just that it's available out there. Exactly. They might not know how difficult their current occupation is that they are looking. If you're looking for administrative assistance these days, that's a very difficult field in many countries. Right? And that's simply because a lot of these things now get done automatically, right? So it's just not so much demanded anymore. But there's still many people that have experience in this occupation and so on. They might think that that would be a good target occupation. You know, one of the things that I find interesting is kind of this type of mismatch, how many people are looking relative to how many jobs are out there. It's a very particular type of mismatch, right? That type of mismatch, I, I think, is potentially large and something that we will see as you know, artificial intelligence and so on moves on, I, I think we'll see more of this. And kind of using kind of tools to mitigate this, I, I find currently, this is not a theory part of my work, it's more like the hands-on part of what I find interesting. So just to take it back uh, to the discussion where we started, so you mentioned that the process of finding jobs has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. And maybe the technology, the way we used to match was very different. You would read in the newspaper and then apply for jobs. So, I mean, online platforms are everywhere. So, if you have to say, like, what has the biggest change been? Are there some papers looking at it, like, how this change in terms of matching has impacted the labor market? And if I have to be, like, more specific, has the process become more efficient? The one thing that is certain is that the process has changed a lot. Okay? And if I think about that, I think about two type of processes that drive how hiring is done in the economy. There's what I would call the formal part, where you kind of put out vacancies, you know, you might screen CVs on the, on, the, on the firm side, and on the worker side, you know, you used to read the newspaper, or now you use some kind of online platform. And I think that process has changed a lot. I think there's this, or we know there's a second part of the process where you talk to friends and family, you try to use informal networks, you ask your employees about recommendations and so on. That part we know generates a lot of matches in the labor market, right? People attribute roughly about half the matches in the labor market to these type of channels. It's half. I, I think it's very large. So I don't want to give the exact numbers, but people attribute very large numbers to this type of recruitment. And I'm not sure that that has changed so much. There are obviously big players like LinkedIn and so on that, that try to also make innovations on yeah. that side. And I think there are some network. papers where people look at, did someone else work at the same firm from where you're coming now? And exactly. These exactly. Are but are like, you know, but I, that part strikes me as potentially having seen much less innovation. Right? I still need to know my old colleague. You know, maybe I can keep track of them a little bit better than I used to, right? But it's still kind of a, a small world type of phenomenon, right? While the other side now, I mean, you, you see a lot more and there are certain costs that clearly went down, right? So I, for example, I could just kind of fire off my 
CV much more quickly now than what I used to be able to do. And so that side, actually, there are interesting studies very early on where, where you know, Craigslist just took job ads from the newspaper and put them online. It's very little evidence that that particular feature hugely improved matching in the labor market. Now, a lot of other things have happened. There are some notions out there that if you bring fast, high-speed internet to regions, right, that actually does matter. But one thing that is, that is also striking is if you just look from an aggregate perspective, how many jobs do we have out there, how many unemployed, it's not that they clear much better now than they used to in the, in the, in the speed sense, right? It's not that we kind of reduce unemployment a lot more now, right? The, the thing that we call in, in, in macro labor the matching function that just takes kind of how many vacancies, how many unemployed, that doesn't seem to be that much more, more efficient. And so people have tried to think about, is that because the process hasn't been more efficient? Or is it just that actually the, the matches that do form, for example, are much better, right? I'm, I'm becoming just much pickier, right? It used to be I take this job because I can't find another one. Now I don't take it. I mean, there's another element to it. And I'm just talking about like firing a CV. That's much easy. But now as a firm, I get so many CVs that I'm drowned into it. I have this as a, as a research proposal lying on my desk since years. I think that is the obvious counter argument to this efficiency argument, everything. We see the same number of matches, but they're a lot better. It could be that we reduce frictions on, on one side, but the other side, the employers are just completely spammed and they just can't deal with it. And it's just the second aspect which has seen much less research. I think it's really quite interesting, but we just don't know how wasteful this. I mean, the number of emails that professors get these days for research assistants, I'm sure uh, they would have received much less letters. Kind of studying this last part of the selection process and how difficult is it for firms because it just gets spammed. You know, the, there's some part in, just in terms of data that we're having that has become a lot better. Right? We see a lot better what firms post because now they do it online. We get a lot of data on how workers search, right? which is phenomenal. Right? We used to not see anything. We had a couple of surveys. Then we had matched employer-employee data from some countries where you really see who is working where. And you can track them over a period of time. You can track them over time, but you do not know how they got there. We have a lot more information, but we still miss this kind of how do they actually look for these things. Right now, on these online parts, you can now study, I mean, pretty detailed about who's looking where, at least on the formal side, not how you talk to your friends and family. And we sometimes now even see whether you applied, but, but there's more and more parts that move online. Eventually, we'll see much more about how firms screen and so on. That part is yet not so much recorded in a lot of these online platforms. Right, because at some point they say, look, you apply and then it kind of moves outside of the platform that, let's say, help you look for the jobs. And so kind of how difficult it is to find the right person, that data is, is still much more limited than the data about where people look, how they apply. But, but the, the first bit is already pretty cool. I mean, we have a lot of old theories that people apply in all kinds of settings that make certain assumptions about how a worker search and you can kind of challenge them now by looking at how, how do they really search. It must have really changed the research design and methods that you use. So maybe you can also give us a sense of having this new kind of data sets, I would say like employer-employee, mass data set, and these new search data sets, like what has it changed? So one is, I think there are two directions in which it kind of changes our whole thinking about these markets, right? We see much more about the actual job search process. So for example, I, I see you finding a job, I have no idea what effort you put to get it. 
now I see a lot, right? I see, for example, did you keep your, the number of applications that you sent constant? Was it going down? Did you allocate it over different occupations? You searched there before, but over time when you're unemployed, you, you don't, right? Or, or maybe so not. Ju ju just a tangent on this. So do we know that in terms of the characteristics, like how people apply, is it like always the same kind of effort? Because, I mean, I'm working on something where we see that people search for a day and then you never see them. Oh, yeah, right. But these things are tricky because on some platforms you wonder whether you don't see them because they just didn't like your platform, right? So it's, it depends a little bit kind of some systems are better to prevent this, right? Some government systems are just the only game in town or you're forced to search yeah. there and so on, right? In some of these other ones, right, I try, I might try your website and it's not that I'm not searching anymore. I just, that wasn't the right website for me. And that makes some of this a little bit tricky. There's a few stylized facts that come out of this, right? For example, if you look at people and you just kind of say, how long did it take you to find a job? Those that take longer, you might have thought, well, they probably didn't search much. Well, it turns out they search a ton. Right? They actually search more than the people that find a job quickly in, in some of the work that's being done there. I don't know exactly what they control for and so on, but some, there's some notion out there. Some people know that they have a tough time in the market. They try to compensate by, in fact, searching more, but they can't quite make up for the fact that they have a tough time in the market. Right, and these type of things, kind of how much does it go down where it doesn't seem to go be going down that much? How much do they broaden their occupational spectrum where they seem to broaden it? But again, it seems to be quite a slow process relative you know, to the length of unemployment. So I think you can learn a lot about how the labor market works just observationally. You can link it sometimes to matched employer-employee data to administrative data. Some European countries kind of where the government has the administrative data but also the job search portals, it's quite exciting. What inspired me a lot in that setting is that I think it's easier now to intervene in the process. And that's work that I did with Michel Bellot and Paul Muller and now with other co-authors. Where, you know, it used to be kind of hard. We were basically bystanders. So you read your newspaper, well, there's not so much I can do about that. But on the online world that we have now, there's, it's much cheaper and much easier to potentially help in the type of information that you see, right? I can show you something else than I would show another person that might look otherwise identical to you. And I might learn about whether what I show you matters for you. And this type of intervention, hopefully guided by principles from labor economics, maybe if I know that your market is very tough, maybe I should show you things from markets that I know are not so tough. So in some sense, you're saying that earlier we used to have these like very aggregate interventions like having just uh, some government agency where you go if you're unemployed you try to search for a job or they retrain you but we never knew what works or what doesn't work in in a very causal sense and now you're saying with these kind of new platforms you can actually have like very detailed interventions i think you can do interventions you can do it much cheaper you can do it much more precise much more replicable I don't want to be so negative about early work, right? People did work with government agencies and said, okay, if we had more caseworkers that actually work with the job seekers, would that help, right? They tried certain programs that might reintegrate you, train you, and so on, right? In the little domain that I've been very interested in, which is just kind of, is there, is it just information? It's not about, I mean, Maybe I don't have the right skills, so I have to go through an eight-week training program or a six-month training program to get the right skills. That's really costly. But maybe, you know, if I lose my job as an economist, maybe I just have no idea. Should I be a banker? You know, what's the next thing that I'm going to do? 
and then maybe there are easy ways to help people navigate that, right? And that's actually kind of cheap and in, you can do that in a much more replicable way. In the old work, when you kind of read, yes, they met with, with advisors, but it's a little bit opaque to figure out what did the advisor actually exactly do with a job seeker. It's like hard logistics. You need people to talk to them. You need people to train to them. And exactly, exactly. And, and, and now I think there are some really interesting interventions where kind of, again, we are talking about heterogeneity and, you know, what workers might be different, jobs might be different, right? Just thinking about... There are some occupations that might be really difficult and can we help people in that or people that are long-term unemployed. Maybe they don't know, maybe, maybe they simply don't know. So what. among these interventions that you might have done or some other researchers, which is your favorite one and maybe you can give us the setting, like how it's done. I really liked an old study that I did with Michel Bellot and Paul Müller, actually implemented in around 2013, 2014 on a very small scale. But what I liked about it is at that time, advice on job search platforms was really rare, right? So that was a time where, you know, nowadays everybody knows about recommender systems. You know, you want to buy a book on Amazon, they're going to tell you there are related books, and I, right? At that time, there was on these labor market sites very little. And so we really, we programmed our own job search matching site where people, where we attracted people to search on our site. We got one of the big providers to give us all the vacancies. And we did something rather simple. We just said, look, some people don't get any information. And for some people, we tell them, well, look, people that look for the occupation you are looking for, they also found jobs here, here, here. And if you click on, if you like this, not only do I tell you this in some kind of abstract sense, but, you know, I can actually show you the jobs that are there in, at that time, Edinburgh. And I think it was kind of interesting, right? I, I, so just to understand the baseline, in the baseline they're searching for jobs and they don't know what other similar people are searching. So they, in the baseline, everybody for the first three weeks searches how they, you know, we ask them, do you search on our platform? There are good vacancies, as good as a government's website. It's right? like standard, you go, you feed in some keywords. You put and some you keywords, you know, and you do whatever you want to do with that, right? And then after a few weeks, we said to half of them, by the way, you know, you told us you're looking for this. Here's where people that, that worked in these occupations also find jobs. Should we also just show you what, what jobs are there in this bigger, maybe bigger set? I mean, some people search very broadly for them. It's not a bigger set, right? But, but some people search very narrowly for them that, that expanded quite a so lot. So when you say broader and narrow, it's like someone was searching for an IT job, but also an Uber job at the same time? Something like that, right? So somebody basically looks at all the jobs in Edinburgh, no matter what it is, right? They might not apply to all of them, but they essentially look at all of them. Okay, some, so this is not applied. This is just looking, looking. at them. Okay. And some people just really seem to be looking for something very specific, right? I was a pipe fitter and I want to be a pipe fitter, and that's what I'm looking for, which, which is legitimate, but maybe those are the people that you can do something with. And the interesting bit there is that, that especially for those people, the, the, the recommendations seem to matter. Seem to matter more than when they were a little bit longer unemployed, right? For some reason, people that just are newly looking for a job seem to think that they find the thing they're looking for. Maybe the ones that are a little bit longer unemployed realize that what they were looking for is hard, maybe more open to, to react to this. And, and they actually not only changed things with us, they also changed what they did when they weren't with us. Maybe they talked better to friends and family. And so what I, what I like out of this agenda is I think 
it, it, I think it was more vision. I mean, it was kind of doing something that wasn't that didn't just exist. It wasn't just an A/B test on something that people were doing already. So you created you, your own platform, and then you ran this information advice on it. Exactly, and you kind of saw patterns that I think are interesting. And I think some of the work I've been engaged since is just saying like, oh how could we really use it? Maybe we don't want to do it for everybody. So we did it for long-term unemployed job seekers because those might be really needing this advice. Now we did it for people looking in occupations where there are just no jobs. Maybe those are the ones we should be helping to get out there. And I know of other work that kind of uses similar techniques, thinking more broadly, is the occupation dimension the right one? Should we go much finer, right? Is it just people looked in that occupation, find something there, or somebody with your age, your gender, and so on and so forth, they would do things. Or you clicked on this long history of things, maybe I can use that. So I think the, there's a set of things that you can recommend is much broader than what we tried. But I think there's a real sense out there that there are things that job seekers might want to know that they don't have, and we could rather cheaply apply it. And the main job for a labor economist is to make sure that we don't crowd everybody into the same place, right? It's different from recommending books, right? You know, if you also want to buy a book, you know, they probably have multiple books and if they don't, they're going to print more, right? But if you go for the same job, you know, if you take it, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to be stuck without. So, so one of the big things is how do we do this so we had not only the individual, so, but the market. I mean, I guess you spent a lot of money at least on creating the platform, but I guess the intervention is cheap, just providing the information. Yes. And so if you can focus on that a little bit, so relative to the classical intervention, like changing skill, training people is difficult, but you think this just providing a little bit more information has some bite in the market? Yes, I, I think it has some. So at least the things that I have done indicate that the effects are are non they're actually quite large. They're not going to solve the unemployment problem, right? You, but but it, they, they really move things by, by some percentage points in the things that I have so, done. So there are two elements to it, right? Like one is like a long-term unemployment. Right. And probably there you really need the right set of skills for the right kind of jobs. So there you probably can't, but there is a intermediate time period about which we also care. And you think in that intermediate period, I think you can improve the matching by a few percentage points, which is a lot, right? So, and I think the questions right now are about for whom does it work so you don't hurt others in the process, right? I think obvious candidates are markets that are really difficult. If I could just, right, there are just tons of people looking for administrative assistance. If I could find for some of them jobs elsewhere, now that makes things tougher elsewhere. Right? Because I sent people over here. So right? let me put the macro hat now, and you're already coming to it, but you're talking about congestion Absolutely. and general equilibrium effect. It's basically saying, okay, something is better here, but you're making it worse elsewhere. But are we converging there? Like, do these interventions on average, I mean, it's a very dynamic field right now, but on average, do you think in 80% of the cases we are actually gaining something or is it, ah, okay, this is better, but that's worse now? So let me put it this way. Work on trying to sort out the general equilibrium effects. It's really, really new. There's a few studies and uh, we just saw some at the conference that we just attended that try this, all right? Different approaches to back this out. I think it's really hard, 
right? Because general equilibrium effects kind of saying kind of what are my effects on people that were not actually right in my study? And then we have, we, we have research designs that do that, but they require a lot of people, right? It's not an easy thing to study. I think my current sense of it is that, that one has to think hard about these things. There are, there are ways, my understanding is from, from the work that Stefan Altman and Thomas Lebaba and Jean and so on are doing, that these crowding effects are there. We are kind of debating what the magnitude of them is. My own view in my most recent work that I did again with Michelle and Paul and a number of other co-authors was basically saying, well, they're, they're very probably there. Maybe we can work on markets where we already know that it's very likely that we do good. So, for example, we know in general that what we would like to do is when you have one market here with lots of vacancies and few job seekers, and we have another market here where the ratio is exactly the other way around, if everybody could do all these jobs, there are a lot of assumptions in there, but in, ideally we would like to make markets more equal. So this is more in the spatial sense or even in the occupation sense when you say market? I, at the moment, talk about the occupational sense, right? But, but there are strong assumptions. I'm really saying kind of if we could, right? There are lots of job seekers looking for administrative assistance. Just imagine they would be great as dental assistants, which is not an obvious thing, right? But if they could also do this job, actually, in, in, for dental assistants, we have quite a number of vacancies and not so many people looking. Now, obviously, if I take some of the administrative assistants, move them over here, the people that were already here, the dental assistants, they might not like that that much, yeah. right? It might be good for the people I moved over. It's also good for the people I didn't move because the ones that are still looking for administrative assistance now don't have such a tough market. And I wrote up a paper that came out in GIA that just kind of goes through these standard things that labor economists know for a long time. In those settings, we expect that the little externalities that we have on these relatively few dental assistants, which is negative, is far outweighed by the positive effects that I create here. And so I think we are at the moment at the process of saying, yes, these, these externalities are there. Can we use economic theory and thinking that we have done for a long time plus empirical work to think about, you know, just because they're there doesn't, doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. Can we target those groups where the effects are really important and the externalities on others are not that high? Maybe the long-term unemployed effects seem to be quite large for them. It's not so clear that the externalities on the others are so large because the other people seem to be getting jobs anyhow relatively quickly. Maybe markets that are really tough, right? If we move people somewhere else, they're going to do a little bit of externalities here, but on net, we'll probably come out well. And I think right now, the interventions that I see that are really interesting are trying to sort this out. How can we do that if these externalities are present? But the exact magnitudes are not so completely clear. And kind of, they're, they're interesting people to think about, okay, how should we make a model where I not only recommend things that interest you, but also take into account how crowded will that place be? Right? Maybe it interests you, but I know that's going to be having a lot of externalities, so maybe I don't do it. In terms of the intervention on the firm side, and I'm again taking the dental example that you give, are there work which says to these dentists that go look for regular assistance? Like, can that also work? 
Like just the opposite intervention from the firm side. I see. So there's, there's a little bit of work, I think, if I remember correctly, the group of Bruno Crepon in France has tried to work on the firm side. There might be others. I think it's fair to say that our understanding of the firm side and how to intervene there is a lot more limited than on the job search side. And even I'm there, actually surprised are, because there are less firms, so maybe you can talk to them more easily than how much you can talk to the workers. Right. I think maybe the reason is that lots of sites where job seekers search, right? It's also if you want interventions, you can kind of find job seekers and ask them to maybe search on your site and things like that. There may be a little bit less sites that say, look, here are a bunch of CVs, employers, come and look, right? These exist. So LinkedIn is clearly one of the big players. So I, I'm sure there will be more. I think right now we don't do, do that much of it, but I know some people do, and I, I think it could be really promising. I'm just going to one of your papers, which I found interesting, the skill side. Like, again, uh, I'm reading from the paper that for most occupations, mobility is U-shaped and directional. And in terms of the outcomes, you are saying that it is both for the low-wage and high-wage workers within an occupation who have a particularly large probability of leaving that occupation, while the lowest probability of leaving is associated with the medium-wage workers within the occupation. So where are these workers leaving and what makes these like mid-tier or mid-wage workers less likely to move? So this came out of a study where we used Danish administrative data. And what we basically looked is there's an occupation code associated with each worker. And we just said, look, maybe within an occupation, we can rank workers from the highest paid to the lowest paid in that occupation. And we simply ask, kind of depending on how well you're paid, what's the likelihood that next year, this is a yearly data set that we have used, I do no longer see you working in that occupation. Okay, so you're leaving that occupation because your code has changed. And what we see is, I mean, switching probabilities are quite high in the data. So these are self-reported? No, these are re uh, they're reported by the firms. Okay. So the, the quality of the data is generally thought to be higher when the firms do the reporting than when the workers do the reporting. So this is generally regarded as relatively high quality data. You see quite high switching probabilities, but you see them much higher. They're high, but still the lowest in the middle. And so... It's kind of interesting. It's kind of easy to explain why people that do badly leave an occupation. Right. So in terms of like switching, what would it be like some example? Problem about classifying occupational switches is that there, there are many of them, right? But there, there are some that are frequent, but kind of a little bit strange for us. There are people that are sous chefs, right? Uh, cooks, and they become truck drivers, okay? I wouldn't quite know how to Necessarily but that, that would be like on the low-wage side probably. That would be on the low-wage side. It could be that you are a technician of some kind and you change to a more manual job, right? Um, it could be that you're a technician moving up to a managerial job. Or well, you are a professor and you become a dean. So you move from teaching to administration. That would, be, that would be all in there. And I think it's generally easy to see for people that if you get relatively badly paid in occupation, maybe you should look for something else. The, the maybe slightly more interesting bit is what do the good people do and why are they not staying, right? You get paid a ton relative to the other workers, why are you not staying? And the data is relatively clear on that. You, you move up to occupations that on average pay more. That doesn't mean that you get more, yeah. right? But, but you seem to be already pretty good. If something happens, for example, you learn that you're even better, maybe you're just at the end of the line in that occupation. 
So you soared into something new because you realized that you now have the skills or it became, a, it became clear to everybody that you have the skills to do this more demanding thing. And that's what you see in the data, right? People at the high end, they seem to be going for things that on average they pay more. They all become managers. And people at the low end, they actually seem to be going to things that actually on average pay less. That's what you see. And people in the middle, I guess, if something changes, yes, I'm a little bit better, I'm still, still fine, a little bit worse, well, it's still reasonably matched and they kind of stay. And that, the one thing I wanted to say is that was kind of in a run-of-the-mill labor market. We didn't look specifically there, for example, in occupations that do really badly. I don't, I don't know or not know how that would look if I looked at an occupation that does really poorly. Right? Who is getting out? Who is still staying around? Is it people that do rather poorly that stay out because they have no other options? Is it people that do relatively well? That, right? So, so I, I, I just don't know the data. Right? But it would be something certainly if I would do it again, I don't do, do this currently, well, that would probably be the next thing I would be looking at is how do these occupations do that, that seem to be strongly in decline. And in this overall work, like uh, we are talking about skill, but we are also talking about like searching behavior, like are there like very contrasting uh, differences across the genders? I know you don't work on it directly, but maybe. I haven't done much on gender. I find it quite interesting. I can tell you where I would have liked to do something on gender, but I, had, I haven't done it. I did one study that I, I thought that was again with Michelle and Paul that I thought was really interesting where we took a labor market that we had created and put in a few vacancies that weren't real. And we changed the wage artificially, right? So it was supposed to be the flip side of um, these kind of CV experiments that are very popular in economics, where you, know, you take CVs that are fake, they're not real, and you just change one thing on the CV, how long you have been unemployed. And then you send it out and you see what comes back. So those are targeted towards understanding what the employers do. This one was supposed to understand what do the workers do when they see different options. Does, it, does pay, for example, really matter or people just say, ah, you know what, right? That's all kind of cheap talk. Once I show up there, we, we're going to talk about it, right? And that's hard to do by just looking at actual vacancies because the wage might be high, but tons of other things might be high as well. That's a long flow tax, very hard to control for. And I, I, I thought, you know, it's ethically very difficult to do this type of work. That's why we had to create our entire market to stick a few of them in, tell people, look, 98% of the market is fine. There might be 2% done for research purposes and work with that. But what you can see in that data is that, yes, more people apply when the wage, goes, when the wage is randomly moved higher. But in fact, if you create pairs and one pays substantially more than the other, there's a fair bit of people that still only go for the low wage. Okay? And I would have loved to understand more what are the features of the people that only target the low thing. Right? There are two options. They, they, they look very, very similar in terms of what they seem to be asking for. One pays 20% more. Who would it be that seems to self-select? Right? There are lots of issues that we try to address in the paper. Did you actually see it or not? We have some notion of trying to argue that they probably did. If you really think that that's a true that in the data that some people really select low, who are these people, right? And, and coming back to your question about gender, right? There's experimental work uh, in the behavioral economics community that thinks, for example, that 
that documented that at least on some domains, there seemed to be a difference in competition avoidance between genders. Okay, that's difficult work, I'm not an expert of that, but at least there's some notion out there that in some domains, women seem to be shying away more from competition than men. You could have thought maybe that explains the data, right? This labor market is inherently a competitive one. If you think about competitive search, the entire reason why not everybody necessarily goes for the highest wages is because they understand that it's really hard to get. And if there's a different attitude by gender about how much they want to engage in this competitive process, that might explain it. I would have found that fascinating. We found no evidence of this. I, but, there was nothing on the gender side. we had very low numbers. We had like 300 people, we had 300 vacancies and so on. So the, the number of people that we had in our data set looking and the number of vacancies was quite limited. And so I couldn't quite get myself convinced from our analysis whether this is truly not there or whether we just, I mean, it was, that was not, the design, the design of the experiment wasn't powered for that type of analysis, right? So that I would love to know. We know other things. We know, for example, from work by Thomas Le Barmanchon and co-authors that it looks like women seem to be much more concerned about distance. Okay, so that's data from France, right? So it, it looks like from the, that particular work, I don't know how much it's got substantiated, that women look for things on average, right? I mean, I, always, I want to make a lot of caveats, right? This is very, I don't want to take any stance. It's not my own work. I'm not an expert on it, right? I, you have to control for a bunch of things. It's maybe not women. Maybe it's about whether you have a child at home and so on, right? There could be lots of co-founders. I, I'm sure they do a, whatever they can to control for that, right? So the message I took away from hearing and reading their work was that it looks like women look for, for things closer to home. And this is like even within a city? I think so. That's, I think, what it is. But obviously, that kind of obviously, if that's true, and you can tell lots of stories why that might still be true, many of them having to do with children, um, that obviously might limit your options, right? I mean, once, once you go geographically close, maybe that affects kind of what wage levels, what career paths and so on are still available to you if that if that if you make a different trade-off along so this opens up like another experiment giving them information if you search a bit wider spatially right is it truly in their preferences or something yeah. about information if it's truly in their preferences they wouldn't change. you know they, yeah. they, they're not going to react so there's a few things we know there's also very 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 interesting work about what employers want because you'd asked me about that before peter kuhn has done a lot of this on on uh, chinese job boards where there was a time where you weren't restricted to make things gender neutral. So you could say, I want a woman, I want a man for this job, or things like that. And so they analyzed that, and it's, it's, it's very descriptive, but very interesting work. So for people that are interested, you asked at the beginning, what, what can we learn with this new massive data? Well, these are some of the things that you could learn by now, it's prohibited, also in China, as far as I'm aware. So they also look at the changes, what that meant, and so on, and I, I found that particular work, for example, fascinating, even though I myself haven't engaged in any of that. I'll go to some of your uh, previous uh, discussion that we had on sorting, like, and this is like more of a, like a real world case. Why do tech workers in Silicon Valley get paid so much? I mean, a lot of people can do those jobs probably, or, or maybe not. I mean, I shouldn't be judging, but yeah, they just get paid a lot and they just stay there. Can we explain it somehow? So again, it goes outside of what I've done work on myself. 
So I, I offer my conjecture, but it's really just sitting here. No, but loosely. this is like theoretical conjecture on your side. Like, can a sorting model explain this kind of like very niche segments, like with very high wages, and then everyone else is like much far down? I think it can. Okay, okay? that's my my educated guess. Okay, and the reason why I'm thinking it can is because I. Th I think what happens, uh, uh, there are several things going together, but I think the biggest one is that most of Silicon Valley, really it's kind of, the work, if it's successful, it, it really multiplies large, right? I mean, these, these companies are usually set up to roll out whatever that they're developing on, on near global scale because it's mostly digital, right? It's, 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 it's things that if it's successful, it, it, it scales massively. Right? So it's this not... goes back to the initial point which you said that every match has some value. And you're saying in case of Silicon Valley, like if you match to a firm there, then the growth is exponential. Exactly. So I think for these firms, the marginal value of having a worker that might be slightly better suited to the job might be really large. It's probably more than Cornell University when they think about who should our economics IT support having, right? It's, it's, right? I think our people are fantastic, but probably the exact change is not going to be multiplied across millions and millions of people buying those products in the end, right? In, in, in some of these Silicon Valley firms, right, it's really kind of a make or break, right? If you make it, you roll it out for millions and millions of people, and maybe just having the slightly better worker just has a big, big marginal value. I also think... No, no, but I think the same person you're saying might be a technical support in Silicon Valley, and I guess in that case, your salaries might be much higher than at Cornell. So I, I, I suspect a lot of this is, is simply explained by these people being a little bit different, right? And if the same person were to come to Ithaca and look for a job there, this difference would just not matter enough. Maybe he wants to live in Ithaca. We have nice waterfalls, great university, right? Beautiful things, right? But the marginal return on his skill differential between the next best guy will probably not be as large. It won't be as rewarded in the Ithaca labor market that he might still choose for other reasons. But if the same person were looking in Silicon Valley, if he has this, this small differential, actually it might blow up to quite large salaries. I also think these people take a lot of risks, right? Their jobs are much more insecure than you might think about otherwise. You know, you work at tech support at Cornell, right? You probably have that job for quite a while, right? You work for a startup in Silicon Valley, not so clear what happens to you two years down the line, right? And I think part of it is also based on a, on a compensating differential for risk. And, and so I think among the two, I would suspect that you do quite well in explaining the wages. Okay. And has there been some work, like again, this is going outside your current work, but like these kind of matching models, can you apply them to the modern economy, like gig work and explain like the matching? Again, this is thinking in terms of like, theoretically speaking, is the matching better now because you work for two hours or like a short-term contract rather than being with the firm all the time and then maybe not doing such great work all the time? So there is some work. I mean, let me tell you a little bit about what I have thought about more than what I know is out there because I'm not sure I know the big picture of what, what's out there. So I can maybe just tell you a little bit of the things that, that I've been interested in. One of the things I've been interested in hasn't to do with geek work but has to do with matching is kind of how does the change in kind of how big firms can get feedback on inequality in the labor market, 
Okay, so that's one of the things. I'm very grateful to the European Research Council for supporting this work, right? It's work that I do with Jan Eckhout and Christina Lafuente, where um, we simply think about kind of if, if now, let's say, big firms can become bigger because my interpretation is always that the things that hold them back from becoming big become less restrictive because we can manage larger entities both across space but also kind of across different workers. We have much better human resource management tools and so on. If you can become bigger, well, that changes who's going to work where, right? There will be more people working in the big firms. That leaves less and potentially less good workers for the smaller firms. How does, what does that mean for how your skills are rewarded? So that generates some kind of feedback loop. Exactly. That generates a general equilibrium feedback loop. Not, not only so much kind of I change myself, but the whole economy changes, all the wages are going to change. And so that's a macro model trying to think about what do these flows that now these big firms are bigger, the small firms are smaller. What, what, what does that feed back into the inequality I see across workers? And I think some of this is kind of having to do with superstars, who's working where, how much does that get leveraged? And I don't have the results yet, but I think these are things we can think about more from a macro mastering perspective about who works where. Now, for the gig economy, you also said about who works where and so on. There's one project I've been in, kind of drafted into with uh, John Horton and uh, Ramesh Yohari, where the, the, that's really a gig platform, right? So maybe it kind of turns slowly back to what we discussed about platforms. And in this gig platform, they basically said, okay, what, what would happen if we asked firms to say, they have to press one of three buttons. The firm has to say, I'm happy with a rookie, but by the way, I'm not paying much. Or they click, I want somebody with intermediate levels of experience and I'm kind of paying all right. Or I click the button saying, look, I really want an expert, but I'm going to actually pay for that. I'm willing to kind of put the money down for that. And just imagine, I, 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 I tell firms, right, you can only post on my platform if you click a button. Now, you might all lie, right? You might do random stuff, right? But kind of the experimental work is very careful trying to sort out, are they lying? Maybe we use some of them where we say, we're never going to show that to anybody. Does that, does the fact that I show it change what people say? And then to look at kind of experimentally by, by, by varying kind of who sees what, does it matter, right? Would, would workers reallocate where they ask for jobs, what wages they demand, and so on? The answer is it matters big time, okay? The effects are very large, both on who sorts where and how that feeds back into wages. And basically, wages go up. When you say you want an expert, not only do you get better people, but these people will ask for more than they would do elsewhere. And if you say, I'm happy with a rookie, you get less people, they are less experienced. But even for the, for the same person, they will ask less than they will ask for other jobs. Because they know that you're not going to pay much. It's just what you told them. And I find this fascinating. So in terms of model building, we cast all of this in a model where workers are different in skills, firms are different in how valuable these skills are. You try to find the right match. And apparently, even in a gig economy where people do different jobs at quite high rates, they seem to have a really high, really difficulty to quickly say which job is actually for my skill. And to target the wages that I demand accordingly. Maybe if I'm a rookie, I'm happy to say, Look, I, I don't want a, a, a high wage, but kind of let me build experience. I'm not an experienced programmer, but I want to be one in the future. Right. Yeah, I guess a lot of these platforms also provide you like some tool to figure out what wage to demand. 
Right, but they apparently really fine-tune this to what they know about the firms. So we know the same firm, right, because sometimes we show it, sometimes we don't, right? So we know very comparable firms, right? When we show it, all of a sudden wages go down for the low ones. And for the high ones, we know it's the same firm because we know the answer. But if we show the answer to the other side, all of a sudden the wage demands go up. And kind of coming back to the gig economy, I think there's a lot we can do even in the gig economy to make this economy work better. Is it actually helping people, the gig economy? The big question is very hard to answer, right? For some people, it might be a good entryway that the classical routes wouldn't have offered them. Some people might like it, for example, because they have a lot of autonomy in which jobs they take, right? But it's very obvious that if you're risk-averse and you would like to have a stable job, the gig economy will not provide it to you most, for most part. Right. I guess and we are so probably going back to course again and thinking about like the fundamentals of this, like what's the boundary of the firm? Exactly, but also kind of are these jobs good jobs in the sense of providing what people need in terms of insurance and so on, right? An old style job, you know, you, you might have less autonomy, you might not like some of the features of it, but you know tomorrow you got to have work. Is the new thing more flexibility and so on and so forth? Is is the risk too high? I think these are difficult things to answer. And it might be different for different people. Exactly. Last, again, very conjectural question. What do you think of these changes in work from home practices and all this AI discussion that we have been having for the last year and a half? How is that going to change the matching or just the labor markets in general? So I haven't worked much on either of them. Um, I worked a little bit on it when I was modeling COVID actually and how much teleworking might have contributed in mitigating the negative effects of COVID. I think it's a fascinating development, right? I think it will potentially change our understanding of space, right? How necessary it is to be close to your work. So it might, I, I think it might have quite heavy impacts on how we organize cities. It will have impacts on how houses are being valued in various parts of the country, right? Can I live far away in a cheap place and still do my work? And my hunches, that's kind of, but I haven't worked on it myself. My hunches, these things are to stay. I would be very surprised if we wouldn't say, at, at least in the, in the more, in, in, in those jobs that lend themselves to tailor-working, I think we will see tailor-working being around. And I think we'll see more and more tools to mitigate the negative parts. Right? One of the negative parts is, I want to reach somebody, I used to just knock at the person's door, now I don't quite know how to reach him. Right? There will be the technological solutions and they already exist in part to do that. I can knock on some virtual door and you'll, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that, I think that's there to stay and it will change urban economics because house prices and so on will be quite, I, I think will be affected. It will change how people search for jobs, right? because you don't need to be quite as local anymore and so on. I think it's fascinating. I just, I just don't have have lots of deep insights about yeah, it. Yeah, so I work with like uh, housing.com like, and I know like talking to those people that in India they changed the designing of the house. Like earlier it would be like two rooms and now people want two and a half rooms because it's possible that they'll work at home. And it's interesting because it changed my prior. I always thought that, you know, there was a model that I saw at some point where you know, it was kind of featured in that if you want to do tailor working, kind of, you know, the cost of the office space and so on would be leverage. Now that I put the cost on you as a worker, where I used to have to bear it myself as a firm, right? And I kind of thought, oh, is that really going on? And the answer, I think, is pretty clearly it's going on, right? If you do a lot of work from home, you realize you do want that 
So I think it's, it sounds like fascinating work. I haven't seen your work on it. I'm looking forward to seeing no, it. No, this is just a data point. I haven't done work on it, but yeah, I heard from the builders that they're really changing, making these adjustments in terms of how houses are designed. Uh, and the other thing about AI, I'm very worried about, no, I'm, I'm also thinking there's lots of interesting things that comes out of it, but from pure labor market perspective, I'm very worried about it. So I said before, I, I'm grateful to the ERC about funding some of my work. And some of it is just looking back, how do we, how do we mitigate even technological change that we had in the past, right? Some people say, oh, you know, future technological change, probably like past technological change, you know, we'll invent something else for the people to do. Well, even if that's true, where I'm not completely convinced, I don't quite know what that would be, right? We moved from heavy lifting to a lot of cognitive work. I'm not quite sure where we're supposed to move now, but, but even if it's true, you know, the disruptions in the labor market are phenomenal, right? If you, if you, if, even if you create new jobs here and wipe out jobs here, it's not clear that the people that where the jobs got wiped out are gonna easily move over here and do these jobs, right? And, and kind of thinking about what do we do with large numbers of educated people not being able to do the jobs they are trained for. But I just think, following on your work, you said that these interventions, I'm talking about the information part, you said that, yeah, these are like very cheap. They affect a few percentage points. So in terms of the cost, it's low, but the returns are high. But here we are talking about magnitudes where you'd require to move like 10, 20% of the workforce, maybe to something else. It might still work, right? So we targeted now things like administrative assistance, which are already seeing real challenges. Right now, I'm just kind of thinking that at the moment there are things that we can recommend. Dental assistant is not, you know, it, it's a feasible move where there's still a lot of work out there. Is is that going to stick around? I do not know. Right. I think the real challenge becomes when the current type of reallocations that seem to be quite feasible at the moment. Right. If you just said freeze it now, fix the market for administrative assistance. That we can probably do and we can help doing a little bit quicker, but even if you didn't do anything, probably people will figure it out eventually. Now, what happens if you also wipe out the dental assistant jobs and a few others that are kind of in the neighboring skill space, which kind of a lot of these things are? You also wipe out the obvious candidates like driving a taxi and driving a truck, and right? At that point, the recommendation part still stays, but I'm not sure how much. <laughs> we don't know the things. other side, where to move. Uh, exactly. And I do think kind of we have to think hard about if, if that happens on those magnitudes, which I can't totally forecast, but, but we as labor economists should think hard about what do we do. There might be, there might be jobs out there that just might not be close in skill space. And how do we, it's a less fair way to say, oh, you sort it out yourself, get some training, use your savings. I, I, is that going to work well? Right? Or do we really going to have things where we have to think much more how do the support systems work? It's great to know that people like you and other labor economists are already thinking about these issues. Thanks for your time, Philip. It was great interacting so, yeah, I really, with you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you.